It always seemed to happen on a Saturday morning. My brother and I, I can remember us running down the stairs, heading out. You know, it'd be one of those nice, warm summer mornings where we're running out. We got a football to play or baseball or going bike riding or something like that. And, and my mother would sometimes, you know, at the bottom of the stairs, she would catch us. And she would ask a completely patently absurd question. You probably remember this question from your own childhood. You're running out the door and she would say a question to us like, Is your room clean? <laughs> what? I mean, where's that come from? You know, it was, it was like completely without warning. Um, she didn't ask it every Saturday. Uh, she didn't even ask it every week. You know, it was just, uh, it was kind of, was our room clean? Of course our room wasn't clean. I mean, did she confuse us with somebody else? I mean, we were looking around, our, I remember, and no, our room's not clean. But, Mother, please, there are things to do. There are footballs flying in the air right now. There are, there are teams being chosen. We don't want to be last just because we're the last ones in line, you know. I mean, imagine what that would do to our reputation. And, uh, you know, there are wiffle balls out there. I mean, there are things to do. Is our room clean? I mean, of course not. My, my brother and Jeff and I, we were, I remember we were about 10 or 11. Our room looked like a war zone, you know. Um, but we always thought that was part of the charm, you know, that it was, it was the way we liked it. And, and, and she had a different opinion, our mother. She wasn't a real neat freak. She wasn't a, a super cleanie. Um, she was, but, but she didn't like the way that we kept things. And, and so she would complain. And she would usually stop by and look at the room and, oh, this is awful. Clean it up. And, you know, shake her head and walk away. And we would be like, oh, yeah, we're going to get around to that. You know, it's on our agenda. It's on our things to do list. But every now and then, every now and then, I could see that look in her eyes. That today was a different day. Today she was going to, you know, have institutional reform around this place. You know, things were going to change. And this was the morning. Is your room clean? Of course it's not clean. But these arbitrary sort of days that we never understood when they were coming or why. But when they did, our normal excuses just wouldn't do. This room was going to be cleaned, and it was going to be cleaned today. You know, there'd be no ball playing. I'm no one to be trifled with, she would say. Back up those stairs. And then, I mean, we had no choice. So we did what you probably did, you know, when you were that age and you wanted to get outside and play ball. And, and, and so we would pick up dirty clothes and smell them. If they were really bad, we'd throw them in the hamper. If they weren't, we'd throw them in the drawers, you know, put them back in with the clean clothes. You know, they could, maybe they would clean up in there or something. And, and then we would take our toys and shove them under the bed as much as we could, you know, and throw the, the top blanket on without making anything underneath it and, and then shove whatever was left in the closet, shut the door and look around and, wow, it looks wonderful, you know. And, and we would run back down the stairs and, and it was on these sort of institutional reform days that... Um, that she would catch us at the bottom of the stairs a second time. And you know what happened, don't you? Oh, no. It's inspection time. <laughs> inspection time? You have to be kidding me, you know? And, and she would walk back up the stairs and open the drawers, pull the cupboards back and open the closet. The avalanche would fall down on top of her. And no, you are not going out until this room is cleaned and cleaned properly. And so we'd go back to work. I suppose our little, you know, shove stuff in the closet under the bed must have worked on some occasions because we kept doing it all the time, and, and it must have worked some, but there were times when it wasn't going to happen. She was not going to put up with this. Her shoddiness revealed what was really going on in our room. 
it revealed that our room was really chaos. Even if on the surface things looked like they might not look like the killing fields of Cambodia for a moment, this was just, this was just what was under the surface that was, was really chaotic. The first words of the Bible are really familiar to a lot of people. A lot of people who aren't even Christians know the first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You'd probably stand on the street corner and, and a dozen people would, or more would, would know that right off. Uh, most of us have an image when we hear these words of, you know, God who's, who's in the middle of nothingness. You know, I don't know what nothingness is like, but, but there he is, God alone in the middle of nothingness. And he begins to create and Genesis gives us a sequence of events. God created light, and sky, and land, and on and on. But if you ever look at, at the very first line of the Bible, in its original language, in Hebrew, you don't get one word before all of a sudden you have a huge problem about how to translate this first, very first sentence. In the beginning God created, or... Could it be, is it independent or dependent? Is it when God began to create? And translators are are stuck on this. I mean, they they tend to opt for the more popular in the beginning, but when God began to create is just as valid a way to translate the first sentence. Is it an independent or a dependent clause? And the difference may not be that big to us, but it begins to shape the way that we see the whole entire rest of that first chapter. You know um, know what happens in in verse 3. In verse 3, and God said, let there be light. What's the first thing created? There is light. But back up, just one verse before that. If you back up to verse 2, the earth was without form and void. Wait a minute, where did the earth come from if light is the first thing to be created? Did you ever, you ever think that, you know? Uh, th- there's, the earth is there, it has no form, it's void, it's filled with chaos in the original, it's chaotic, and God creates light. According to Genesis, the earth exists before light is created. The earth is already present it's not really the point I want to get to, but I want you to see that, that, that what Genesis does with this creation and this order of creation is not, to give us, is not to give us a chronology of events. It doesn't give us a sequence. It's poetry. It's meant to be read like poetry. Oh, you know how we do this. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, praise Him, for He is thy help and salvation. Or, or in the second verse, praise to the Lord, who are all things so wondrously reigneth shelters thee under his wings. You know, we don't really get sheltered under God's wings, do we? We understand that. It's poetry. It's meant to, to push language out and help us to explain the awesomeness of God, help us to explain something that we can't put in hard and fast literal words. Genesis does the exact same thing. You see, the point of Genesis is not how or when or how long it took God to create might surprise you because you know that um, I tend to, uh, to be very conservative in sort of thinking and orthodoxy and, and all those. I, I, I cherish those, those values. But the point of Genesis isn't that we take this Bible into a science class to prove, you know, that uh, whatever is being said by scientists isn't right. That's not the job of Genesis. Genesis was written long before any of those questions were even up. The point of Genesis is that God enters into an inhospitable place and makes it habitable. God enters into chaos and turns it into a place that can be 
welcoming. In Genesis, actually what you have is, is on day one you have light. Uh, on day two you have sky. On day three you have land. And if you look at this like at a chart, you know, day one up here, day two, day three, day four, guess what you have on day four? You have luminaries. You have light and then you have things that, that, that you know, put forth light. In day two, you have, you have sky, and then you have birds of the air. You have an environment, and then you have its inhabitant. And then you have land, and at last you have people. It, it, the, the days of creation are set up to say, look, God creates an environment, an environment that was at first inhospitable, and he makes it habitable. He brings, chaos, brings order, rather, where there was chaos. He changes the thing that is bad and makes it good. Uh, today is a Baptism of the Lord Sunday. Um, it's a day in church history that if we could forget it, we would. Because we don't know what to do with this, you know. I mean, how do you explain that Jesus was baptized? I mean, Jesus goes to John and is baptized. There's so much trouble. Here's the problem. It's, it's mentioned explicitly in three of the Gospels and it, it's intimated in the fourth. So you can't get away from it. <laughs> you have to deal with it. And the church has struggled with this for many years. But here's what I think it says to us. It says, first of all, that Jesus identifies with us. He identifies with us, sinful human people, frail, broken, full of kind of um, all kinds of, of problems. But it also says this, that he not only identifies with us, he takes the initiative. God moves into our neighborhood when we didn't even know there was a house being built. He, he's the one who shows up on our doorstep when we didn't even know that we needed someone to come see us. God moves in and moves toward us. Always moving toward us. And I think that's what Genesis 1 is about as well. That God is moving towards us. The last, the last part of creation. What's the final part of creation Genesis chapter 1? The creation of humans. As if God is saying, all this environment was created just for you. Um, I used to teach Genesis at, at the university, and um, I used to you know, talk to students about, imagine someday when you get married, and, and imagine you get married, and, and then a, a couple years later you're going to have a baby. What do you do? And, and they, oh, you know, you make a nursery, and you, know, you paint it, and you, you put a bed up, and you, you, you go through all these things long before the baby gets there, Right? I mean, if it was up to dads, it wouldn't be. But if moms, they get things ready, right? I mean, we're like, well, maybe we'll figure this thing out along the way. But no, not moms. They, they, they're making this, this environment. They're getting things ready so that when this baby arrives, this environment is ready for it. It's, it's hospitable. They take what was a great exercise room and turn it into a nursery, you know. They take a chaos and turn it into order. God enters into our chaos. He acts. You know, our lives are like little boys who, who don't really, you know, care for their bedroom. <laughs> we, just, we don't mean to be messy. We just are, right? And, and all of a sudden, one day, we're like, oh my goodness, the clutter around here. Look at the clutter in our lives. How did this happen? And, and, and try to straighten it up and we pull the blankets down and, you know, shove stuff in the closet and hide it under the bed and pretend like everything's great and it's not. The chaos remains. And God enters into our chaos. And He brings order. 
There's a story about um, about these scientists who were um, they were studying how long rats would continue to swim in water uh, before they would give up and drown. And so they they found went through all these different kinds of rats, and apparently the Norwegian rats. The Viking rats are the tough ones, you know. They would put them in, in, in like a tub of water and they would swim for like seven hours. And then they would, you know, seven hours, a long time, they would finally give up and, and die. But they tried something with these really tough Norwegian rats. They, they let them swim for seven hours and, and just at, at, at the very last minute they plucked them up out of the water. And, and they, they gave them a minute to rest and then they put them back in. Just, just out of the water a little bit and then right back in. And they found that these rats who were plucked up out of the water would swim 20 hours compared to just seven. And they begin to think, it seems like if they have just a little bit of hope, <laughs> these Viking rats will just keep right on swimming. Keep swimming and swimming and swimming. And the Lord Jesus was baptized. And he moves into our neighborhood. And he gives us hope. He gives us hope more than just to pluck us out and say, oh, keep on going. But He gives us hope every day. Every day. It's God who enters into our chaos and says, but I can straighten this up. I can make this orderly. I can make this right. And He does it without us ever asking. Because He loves us and He wants us. He wants us to be fulfilled and happy and, and all the things that we long for. He wants that for us even more than we want that. Because He knows us. He made us for Himself. And I think, I think that's really, really good news. 